0: Hello and welcome back to the Wheeler Centre podcast. We hope that you're safe and well wherever you are. In this episode, we're headed back to the 8th of May 2019 at Melbourne's Athenaeum Theatre for a conversation about libraries with Paul holden and Susan Orlean. Here's Shelf Life, hosted by Kate Tawney.
1: Um, My name is Kate Tawney and I'm CEO of State Library Victoria and welcome to this discussion, appropriately titled Shelf Life, as we explore the wonderful world of libraries. Before I introduce our guests, I'd like to acknowledge that we are meeting tonight on the traditional lands of the people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to the elders of other communities who might be with us tonight. Over the past couple of days, I have had the great privilege of spending some time with Susan Orlean and Paul Holdengrava, proudly showing off our beautiful live State Library of Victoria, um, and welcome to my colleagues, many of whom are here tonight, um, and I'm really looking forward to to continuing the conversations that we've had over the last sort of 48 hours. But first, to some introductions. Hailed as a national treasure by the Washington Post, Susan is the acclaimed best-selling author of Rin Tin Tin and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Academy Award-winning film adaptation. In the, the library book, she reopens the unsolved mystery of the worst library fire in American history, the devastating blaze which destroyed the LA fire in 1986. But in investigating this, she also delivers a love letter to libraries. Booklist described the library book as mesmerising, a riveting mixture of true crime, history, biography, and immersion journalism, probing, witty, dramatic, and deeply appreciative. Orleans Chronicle celebrates libraries as sanctuaries, community centres, and open universities run by people of commitment, compassion, creativity, and resilience. Susan has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1992. Please welcome her. And Paul is the founding executive director of the Anassis Foundation LA an outpost of the NASA's headquarters in Athens, which began its work as a centre of dialogue earlier this year. Prior to working at OLA, he was the founder and director of New York Public Library's Public Programming and host of Live from the NYPL. A seasoned interviewer, Paul is known for encouraging his guests to step outside their areas of specialisation and into wider-reaching discussions. His conversational partners have included Patty Smith, uh, Zadie Smith, Jay Z, Wes Anderson, Salman Rushdie, Christopher Hitchens, uh, David Remnick, and Pete Townsend. Paul has written essays and articles for journals in France, Germany, Spain and the United States and in addition to his work at OLA, he sits on the Sun Valley Writers Conference Board of Directors, the Onassis Foundation Board of Directors and the Paul and Daisy Soros Board of Directors. He also hosts a podcast, A Phone Call from Paul on Literary Hub. In a wonderful interview, uh, which Paul did with Phil Adams last week, Philip reminded his listeners that Paul was once described by George Saunders as one of the most brilliant minds in America or anywhere, which is deeply impressive for you, Paul, but thoroughly daunting for anyone who is actually interviewing you, I have to say, (laughs) other than Philip, of course, who didn't find that daunting at all. Um, Please welcome Paul. So... Um, While I am, uh, uh, I have the great pleasure of um, leading the State Library of Victoria, I do feel the need to confess to you that I am not a librarian, I'm a journalist, I spent 25 years as a journalist before very blissfully joining the State Library of Victoria three years ago. And I do feel the need to confess this because I was at an event last week and I was quoting from Susan's book and um, a very astute member of the audience pointed out that not only was the bo- book dog-eared and noted that the State Librarian of Victoria had dog-eared the book, but I then opened the book to, to show her that I've written in it, in pen. <laughs> but the crowning um, uh, glory of this book is that you won't be able to see this, but on the front of it, and i shared this with Susan, is an iron mark and this is the result of my 16-year-old daughter doing some ironing and accidentally using this as an iron stop. Um, so it could have burnt down our house, which I thought... might <laughs> would have been very appropriate, exactly. actually. But my 16-year-old still doesn't understand the beautiful irony of that. So I think, that's, I think it's just perfect. Um, and I apologise to the librarians in the room. I'm very respectful of the library's collection. I just need to assure you all of that. Um, but Susan, I think that's a lovely sort of a, a symbolic uh, um, uh, you know, mark for us. Tell us how this story came about for you. I think the background story is beautiful.
2: It, it came about um, rather serendipitously, to be honest. I, and particularly because I had decided that I did not want to write another book. I had finished my last book. I, my son was a toddler at the time I was writing my last book. And I have one piece of advice, which is either write a book or have a toddler, but don't (laughs) do them both. And I I just really didn't feel that I had the, the commitment to do another book. But one day I was in the library and I looked around and I had that instinct, which is probably why I'm a journalist, which was I looked around and I thought, you know, I've been in libraries thousands of times and I actually have no idea how they work. I thought to myself, someone should write a book about that. that that's an interesting subject. Just the day-to-day life of a library. Someone should write that, not me, but somebody. <laughs> I then... Some time later, had moved to Los Angeles. My son was in first grade and he had a school assignment to talk to someone who worked for the city. And he told me about his assignment, and he was five years old. And he said, I have to talk to someone who works for the city. And I, I kind of sized him up and I said, How about if you interview a garbage man? And he sized me up and said, how about if I interview a librarian? <laughs> and I thought, I am such a good mother. <laughs> when I took him to the library to do this interview, I was just overwhelmed with emotion. It was something about that trip brought me back to the remembrance of all of these trips that I had done with my mother. And I was just struck by this idea that a building filled with books could bring out an emotion that was so profound Mm -hmm. and so stirring and so, um, so deep. Again, I thought someone should write a book about this, but not me, but somebody. (laughs) Now I had just moved to Los Angeles. I was asked to give a little talk at a fundraiser for the library. And at the end of the talk, the the gentleman who runs the Library Foundation offered to give me a tour of the downtown library. And I was very, very excited because I didn't know LA had a downtown. (laughs) i had also, I had never seen the building. I was thrilled. So I met him, and we began touring the building, and I I just was in love with the building immediately. It's just a a wonderful, unusual building built in 1926, very eccentric. We stopped at one point in front of a bookshelf, and he pulled a book off the shelf, and he held it up, and he took a deep breath, whiff of the book and I thought I'm new to LA I don't know (laughs) are you supposed to now take that book and smell it or do you take another book and smell it I, I wasn't quite sure what to do and he said to me you know you can still smell the smoke in some of them I didn't know what he was referring to and I said well did they used to let people smoke in the library and he said no smoke from the fire. I said, "What fire?" He said, "The big fire in 1986." It and I said, "Why? Well, I, I don't. I don't know what you're referring to." He said, "Well, you know, the big fire in 1986. It closed the library for seven years." Mm-hmm. Click. I just thought someone should write a book about this, <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it should be me. <laughs> it it. Absolutely captivated me. I, I mean, I, I learned very quickly that this was the largest library fire in American history. I had never heard a word about it. And well, tell us
1: about this. Why?
2: Well, there was a very particular reason, which I learned quickly. I, had, I went home that night, and I thought, I just don't understand how I would have not heard about this fire. Now, I was living in New York at the time of the fire, but I still couldn't understand how I had never heard about it. So I went to the New York Times archives. I thought, let me look and see what the newspaper was that day that I was reading. Up comes the front page of the paper, and it says, Soviets deny meltdown at Chernobyl nuclear plant. I thought, now I, I now know why. I didn't and there was a story about the library fire but it was far back in the front section because of course and it was really a reminder to me of what it felt like the day we learned about Chernobyl which was nobody knew whether the world was going to end so that completely dominated the news and this fire which was quite epic in its own right you know, the world wasn't going to end because of this fire, whereas Chernobyl presented the very real possibility that the world was going to implode. It explained to me quickly um, wh- how this confluence of events meant that I had never heard about the fire. Uh, and and from that point on, it was a, a kind of... Mission to understand what happened and why it mattered. Why the idea of a library burning felt like a wound. Why do libraries matter so much that the idea of one burning was sickening? Mm.
1: And seven years of the closure of that library. Tell me the impact on the community, but in particular, the impact
2: on the library staff. Well, the the library staff was traumatized. The fire burned for seven and a half hours. They were standing on the sidewalk watching it burn, which would almost make it worse, I think, to stand there and watch your life's work literally going up in, in flames. They were deeply, deeply traumatized. Um, you know, this was a huge loss for the city, of course, and the fact that the library didn't reopen for seven years meant that all of the functions the li- downtown library provided were being, either were non-existent for seven years or being offered in a very limited way at a temporary location the librarians really suffered they experienced what i think would be fairly described as ptsd Uh, they the city ended up bringing in a psychologist to meet with them to try to help them get over some of the emotions and i'll tell you one of the things that for me was very moving i mean of course they were horrified to see their work disappear and by that I mean the collections they'd built the you know the the effort that they put into creating the library as we know it. They were deeply troubled by the idea that their patrons would not have somewhere to go. And when they Sort of did free association with the psychologist that came up for a lot of them, saying, "I'm worried about my patrons. I'm worried about the people who come in regularly. Where, whether they're finding somewhere else to go, and it 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 really moved me. Um, it made me feel that we don't begin to understand uh, what." being a librarian means in terms of being a steward of a community.
1: Mm. Paul, you and I spoke a little bit about that earlier today. Uh, what was your experience at the New York Public Library, being a non-librarian? Be, coming?
0: I'm, I'm, I'm also not a librarian. As I often say, nobody is perfect. So, um, <laughs> but, but before I answer your question, if I, I may, mm. to Susan, the, the way you were talking about it made me think that... Really, um, first of all, that the subject chose you. Mm. Um, Mm. The subject chose you. Uh, You, you, you didn't want to write a book. (laughs) This is what's going to happen. Uh, You know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask Susan a question. You're going to try to ask me a question. It won't work. No, 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 I will answer some questions. But the subject chose you. It called. Yes. No, it had kind of a, a vocation, as it were. The subject beckoned, said, Susan you are not going to get out of this because you <laughs> need to write this book. The library needs you to write this book. The library as an abstract, but also the LA Public Library. But also, you need to write it because you need to pay tribute to all of that childhood experience yeah. of going to libraries.
2: Yes. And, you know, I will answer I, your question. Yeah, thank
1: and you. I'll bring you back to it.
2: I'm, I'm not you know as much as it sounds a little bit like i'm being facetious i really didn't want to write another book this i felt like the third time that this called to me i surrendered <laughs> i i felt that it and it became such an emotional appeal remembering and being having these Recollections stirred of going to the library with my mother and
0: and she wanting to be a librarian.
2: And that that was her dream job. Um, And it was something that was a refrain in my childhood. My mother saying, you know, if I could have done anything, I would have been a librarian, if I could have chosen any profession. And I would say to her, even when she was well past the point of it being even relevant, I would say to her, it's not too late. <laughs> it's a little bit like my dad saying to me, literally after I had published like seven books, he kept saying to me, it's not too late to go to law school. <laughs> um, he, he, You know, and at some point I said to him, guess what? It's too late. Actually, it it's very too timely in a library. discussion today.
1: Actually, now in a um, uh, political scenario that is... Like, Absolutely timely. <laughs> go on. What but, was the. Uh,
0: I, I, but the librarian also as healer and the yeah. librarian as nearly a doctor. I mean, the way you were talking about what will I do with my patrons, it sort of makes you think of a mixture of a doctor and a psychoanalyst. I... The psychoanalyst who goes on vacation, where will my, patro- my yeah. patients go? Mm. Mm.
2: Well, I think of it in a way as a, as a job where of being a shepherd right. and and caring for this flock of people who who count on you and who come to the library as a place of comfort and solace and information and connection it it seems like a a job that involves—I don't—I shouldn't say healing, but certainly of of comfort, of attention, of stewardship. I
1: think the the um, I think it's that that sense of um, vocation, and I think we're incredibly lucky to have vocations too, because I think that most people don't necessarily have vocation right. in their in their lives, in their job in their and roles. That, and that's
0: all right also because you know there Absolutely. can be a burden of it can be I a don't burden. have a vocation. That's right. We can have a perfectly wonderful and fulfilling life without having that calling.
1: Absolutely. Um, but but I think the the other thing that we were talking about is that that sense of responsibility to community right. mm-hmm. and, and public service in the very best sense of the term. Um, And I think certainly in Australia, sometimes public service can have a a particular tone. What I've recognised and witnessed at the the library is an absolutely pure um, desire to deliver a service to the public, which is is incredible and quite rare and increasingly rare. Remind
0: me what your question was.
1: Oh, I can't remember now, Paul, no, okay. we've gone. So I think what I, was, what I was asking you is when you joined uh, the New York Public Library um, and you hadn't been in the library sector, did you recognise that sort of sense of vocation as being unique?
0: Oh, very much so. But uh, again, my, my, what I do for a living is I chat to people. <laughs> so I, I, what, what my goal was, how do you make a library come to life yeah. in a different way so that it's not just and i use the word just in a not in just just that way not just books but books that come to life the shelves begin to sing yes. the voices i mean susan has magnificent passages precisely about books yes. sort of crying out um, and books having a voice. And mm-hmm. what I wanted to do was find find a way to, to bring people together, much of the way you have come together here, to go to this very strange place where when you read, you're alone. And then here, it's a moment in the dialectic. You're all together here, and the hope is that after tonight you will go back into the solitude of your chamber to read and then go back again in a, another form to talk about what you've read. And it's a wonderful circle.
2: Yeah. And
0: that, it's that circle that interested me. How do you bring to the library unsuspected combination of people yeah. to bring the library to life? Because the big trouble now is how do we make libraries not... I think libraries will forever remain relevant, but how do we make them sexy and exciting?
1: Yeah. And alive. And your
0: library that I visited this afternoon, mamma mia. I
1: mean, you know... (laughs) Thank you, no, Mamma Mia, it, it's
0: it's great. It is, it's, it's amazing. Great. I mean, mm. you, we, we were walking towards the library, and you said, you know, young people come and visit this, and there were twenty-five teenagers just go though I, c- graphed, actually. I mean, I was Kate saying, Kate saying how many young people, orchestrated that perfectly,
1: <laughs> it was well done. Um, but I, I think the other thing about um, that is the serendipity. So you talk about trying to 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 bring ideas to the library, and I think one of your aims at the New York Public Library was to bring the ideas to the library that weren't necessarily on the bookshelves. Right. So tell, can you, are you able to share how you joined the library? What was the offer that was put to you?
0: Well, one day I was at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, LACMA, and my then assistant told me the president of the New York Public Library is on the phone. I said, all right, let me take the call. And so a man named Paul Leclerc called me up, and he said, I'd like to have lunch with you. Um, I'm coming out to L.A. And I said, I thought that was pretty far, because there must be kind of nice places to have lunch in New York. (laughs) And so he flew out to L.A. He said, I have something important to say to you, Um, and let me come and have lunch with you. And um, we sat down, and the minute he sat down he wasn't prone to uh, small talk he said i would like you to oxygenate the library (laughs) these were his words and then i transformed that term by saying that my goal is to make the lions roar because there are two lions in front of the library patience and fortitude and i wanted to bring them to life and so Two or three months later, I took up this position of coming to the library and making it into, in a a different way, a vibrant place. I had never in a million years thought that I would be working in a library. I was lucky enough to have the trust of the president to... Without committees and without meetings, I had put that as a condition for my employment. No meetings. Could you and,
1: not share no, 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 that? No. Could you not say that? Because I've colleagues. Truly, truly, and I say <laughs>
0: this, you know, as the CEO of the library here, it's dangerous. But uh, as I've often said, you know, my colleagues did two things: they went to meetings and they came out of meetings. And and so. Uh, you know, the, he, he let me create this kind of little monster within the library where I would bring all kinds of people, you know, and it would be wonderful to bring people who don't fit into the library, so to speak. Of course, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't fit in the library, come to think of it. So, you know, I invited people like Jay-Z and like Mike Tyson and like Pete Townsend and all kinds of people who might not find their way into a library, and it brought about all kinds of young and not young people to rediscover the pleasures of learning, which is really what it is about.
1: Mm. And you found that, I mean, you you articulate that so beautifully, the the different reasons people come to the library. That was kind of a lovely journey to go on with you of your discovery of that.
2: Well, it was something that, you know, I was coming to the library day after day after day, and so I was seeing a... A kind of core sample of who was in and why. And I loved the randomness of it. I, I loved the idea that one person was walking in to look for a book about poetry and another person was walking in to look for a map. From eighteen seventy five a particular county in Kentucky, and someone else was doing genealogy research, and someone was looking for a manga and it just the the randomness of it was exhilarating mm. just and that's also why I loved i at one point I found the logs um the log books recording some of the questions that people would call the library to have answered because um, before Google, people would call the library anytime they had a question. They also, by the way, used to call all the time when they were trying to do crossword puzzles. (laughs) And it happened so often that the library came up with a rule that they couldn't answer crossword puzzle (laughs) questions because it was taking too much time. But, um, the the incredible randomness of what's on anybody's mind at any particular moment in time to me is thrilling. It, yeah. it suggests the incredible breadth of human curiosity mm. and also human sort of time-wasting yeah. uh, preoccupation because not all of these are magnificent questions about the meaning of life. Some of them are like do you know how to get in touch with a particular actress? Or, (laughs) I mean, some of them are ridiculous questions. But the the extraordinary feeling that you were sweeping through the the minds Mm -hmm. of everyone in a city at a particular moment delighted me. And the library, day to day, has that quality of just immense vitality of just these are questions people are looking to have answered even if it's just where can I get free wi-fi Mm. um or I just where's their quiet corner where I can sit and and read my book whatever the the need that propels you to the library it's different for everybody Mm. and the remarkable Array of human experience, which I I really truly feel is on display in a library in a way that is unique. I don't think there are that many places that have that feeling that everybody has their own mission, everybody is there for a different reason, and remarkably, the library can kind of answer all of those. Needs and
1: importantly, there's no transaction required, and no one is right. ever asked right. why they're there. And we talked a little bit about that today, uh, in the, in the context of uh, of the homeless, of the mentally ill, and and the shift. I think as community services change, the shifting role of libraries um, and how we manoeuvre through that.
2: I think it must be remarkable for a person who is homeless to know that as long as they adhere to the standards of conduct, that they can come and be in the library. So important. And there really isn't anywhere else that left. they left. can do that. Mm, left. Yes. yes. Um, and increasingly so. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: You know, increasingly so.
2: I mean you, there's no, no money exchanges hands ever in the library. And the idea that you're somebody who feels absolutely disenfranchised, but you can go to the library and be there. And if you behave, you know, within these pretty uh, generous rules of behavior, you can be there all day and read books and keep to yourself and check email and nobody asks you for money and nobody It's not about
0: owning which is one of the most yeah. important things. Mm. Yeah. It's not about the drudgery of being useful. It's not about having. Mm. And I love that passage in your book about you being a family that was brought up on on not owning, Mm. on not having books. I mean, that changed when you became a bit older. But at first, it wasn't about the possession of the book. It was being possessed by the book, but not possessing mm. it.
2: And it it is interesting. I think that there is a tremendous move toward that again. I I think um, there is a, a tremendous... Appreciation once again for the idea of experiences that don't result in the owning of an object. Mm. Um, and, I mean, my parents were great readers, but they didn't particularly see why you needed to own a book. Mm. I mean, it was about reading the book, not about owning the book. So they were very early millennials, I guess. They were like pre, pre, pre-millennials. Because once again, I think there, there's a real sense among people of a certain age and younger that experiences are what's valued rather than I need to own. Actually, it's interesting. I mean, car companies, for instance, are very nervous about this because people under the age of 30 don't think owning a car is the most uh motivating issue for them the way it has been for so many years and they feel like well i can rent a car what do i need to own a car oh, i can
0: rent a house um, uh, yeah. people are they're worried also about who will want the impediment of having a home
2: yeah, yeah. and and you know i certainly realized when when i became a, a maniac for buying books and then i moved and the <laughs> amount of time that i spent packing my books and also, at that point, my records. And I thought, I, I weigh five million pounds. Like, I, I, my ownership of things in this world has become extremely cumbersome. Yeah. Um, and libraries are a sort of a remarkable liberation from that, where you could get to have everything you want. You have a bigger library of books, available to you than you could ever own personally but you don't have to pack them and move them when you <laughs> when you move you know that feeling
0: i, I do I, I i did tell sally this story um, um i did tell kate this story um uh, today when we met after the uh, the um, president of the library hired me, he called me up two months later and said, you know, I'm really, really very happy that you're coming to the library, but we already have a disagreement between us. And I hadn't even started the job yet, and so I was wondering what it was. He said, you know, on your moving expenses, there's this one-line item, and that was my books. And at that point, I knew that I owned 16 thousand pounds of books oh,
2: God.
0: and in a moment of humor paul leclerc said you know we have books here <laughs> and of course i said to him yes of course they're not my they're not mine but if you permit me once i take this job to inscribe the books i check out of the library i'll leave mine back and of course he said no i think it's better for you to take them
2: you know i have to say this is just been this odd experience that I've had since this book came out which is I've had a number of people come to my book signings with library copies of their books (laughs) and they say can you sign it and I say but I, 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 I think that's defacing the book I'm not sure that I should in fact somebody did that yesterday and she kept saying no no it's really okay I've checked with them and I thought I don't believe you, actually.
1: (laughs) We have a lot of public library people in the audience who are very concerned. Well, all I can say
2: is if you see a copy of my book that I've signed, it was under duress.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Paul, I want to return to your role. Um, You spent 14 years um, creating incredible programming in that period of time, what changed? How, how did you measure your success? How did you know if an event had worked?
0: It's always, hard. it's always hard for oneself to know that anything has worked. I mean, it's in the eyes of other people that you sort of recognise sometimes that something may have worked. But I think things change dramatically because of all of these machines we have and the online world, which... For a long time, people would tell me, aren't you worried by e-books? Aren't you worried by the fact that people are going to research everything online? Won't people want to come less to public conversations? It's exactly the contrary that happened. Mm-hmm. I think because we spend so much time in front of our screens, we need to be with other people. This, You've heard me often in the last few days quote this English psychoanalyst Adam Phillips who said, you can't tickle yourself. I mean you can try it doesn't really work very well we need the company of others we need to and because there is such a, a world an electronic world i think people more and more want to find new spaces of conviviality also of course a library has has changed and i think susan does a beautiful job of talking about libraries as a play as social centers, mm-hmm. centers, I mean, by social I mean not only social service, but The the New York Public Library has an enormous amount of programs for for immigrants, programs for people who need to know how to write a CV, for people who know how to speak to their landlords. I mean, all kinds of, the kinds of questions you get there are incredible. I invite all of you, if you have three hours and 18 minutes, to look at Fred Wiseman's Mm -hmm. movie about the New York Public Library. It is incredible. It is incredible, the ki- and it begins with librarians a- answering the most extraordinary questions, that you wouldn't <laughs> assume that people, you know, about unicorns, I mean, yes. all, all kinds of yeah. things. Um, or you, whether
2: a certain food item they have in their pantry is safe to eat. Right. Yes. Or, or yeah. Most amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: The other thing I, I love too is the the discussion and um, and your um, discovery of the collections and your surprise at the collection. Um, tell us a little bit about what what you loved most about discovering.
2: I think, uh, like probably many library users, it, it didn't occur to me that the library had this enormous. Um, kind of hidden treasure of things that were not books. Possessions that um, became part of the library's collection through, in some cases, a bequest from an estate or librarians decided to develop a particular collection. Um, One one example is uh, there was an ophthalmologist in Los Angeles who took it upon himself to begin collecting menus from every single restaurant in Los Angeles. And it became a passion of his, and he ended up bequeathing it to the library. And you might think, well, that's a lot of menus. Um, but it's it's a, a kind of wonderful social history of a city if you have that kind of collection. And as you and I were talking about (laughs) earlier today, it it just so happened as a little additional sort of um, enrichment of this collection. This ophthalmologist apparently was um, a bit of a a, um, womanizer. And he noted on each menu the name <laughs> of the woman he had taken to the restaurant. So we have both, like, the largest menu collection in the United States, but also the largest dating manual in the United States. I, I love the... Coll- uh, I mean, I personally, just as w- one of my favorite things, is I love maps and atlases and the Los Angeles Library Has a huge map collection, um, which coincidentally kind of quadrupled overnight because um, I'll I'll just make a little side trip here to tell you this amazing story, which is this is how libraries sometimes come into collections. There was a a, a little house that uh, the owner had died, and the estate, the people in these who were in charge of the estate had called a real estate broker and said that they wanted to sell it as a tear down, that somebody would buy it, just tear it down and you have, basically buy it for the land. And the realtor went over to the house just to take, kind of take a look around and figure out what he was going to price it. For. He went into the house and it was stuffed, stuffed to the rafters with maps and atlases the man who had lived there was a map fanatic and he had collected 200,000 maps he this is my favorite thing he had them in his oven he had so many that he had run out of space the back of the television, the two, the, the <laughs> guts of the TV were gone, and it was just filled with maps. Everything, was, I don't even know where he slept. But the real estate broker, it, the, the, the estate owners had said to him, just empty the place and put it on the market, and he saw all of the maps and thought, I can't mm. just throw these out. I mean, these have to be valuable. He called the library and he called the head of the map collection and said, you should come over and take a look. The head of the map collection came over and I think he almost died of a heart attack. (laughs) You know, he opened the door and just said, get me some boxes. (laughs) Showed up the next day with like five other librarians and lots and lots of boxes. So the L.A. Library's map collection went from overnight from 100,000 maps and atlases to 300,000 maps and atlases. It just amazing but there there are remarkable things in that collection and I think the beauty about that is the
1: story behind the story of the collection and I think in in your book you capture that so beautifully um but the guy with his menus for me the it's not the enrichment of the dating you know the dating kind of element it's just those beautiful stories yeah that capture who we are. And and over time, um, those stories are so important.
2: Yeah, and so many of the collections at the library have come about through some, not not a traditional, um, you know, you go to a rare book dealer yes. and buy a collection. Yeah. There were actually, one of my favourite collections was there was a group of anti-war protesters um, who were very active in L.A. in the 60s. And they had they had flyers and posters, and uh, And when the Vietnam War ended, they... Actually, it's a wonderful fact that they thought, let's save all of our posters and, and pamphlets and everything that we created and they stored it in a treehouse for since 1966 and they're now a little older <laughs> and they i guess were getting rid of their treehouse and realized that they had hundreds and hundreds of the the sort of flotsam and jetsam of their anti-war activism. They just donated it to the library. Mm. And it's it's absolutely an invaluable resource of Mm. looking at America in the 1960s Mm. and what was going on that could have easily gone into a garbage bin. Mm. Um, And fortunately... They thought, well, the library may want this, and it, it found a wonderful home.
1: Mm. We're going to take questions in a moment, but if you so, if you do have a question, just uh, raise your hand so um, our facilitators can see where you are. But Paul, before we do go to questions, why do you think libraries have endured and thrived?
0: Um, S- Susan um, has a, a story in the book that. Um, a quotation in the book that has always mattered to me very deeply um, uh, from an african writer who who said that when an old person dies, a library disappears with him, and that to my mind is why why libraries matter because they you know the the English word for memory for remembering is so powerful right remembering putting back the members together. And I think that when I, I heard somebody go, "Oh, no, it's good, no? It's really, <laughs> it's a good word to remember in that way. And I think that's why libraries matter is because we, we need to tell stories in order to survive. And libraries are, and I mean, there's one passage, if I may, mm. that I just so love of, of Susan's, um, It's so fantastic. She says, a library is a good place to soften solitude, Mm -hmm. a place where you feel part of a conversation that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, even when you're all alone. The library and this, I mean, this gave me chills when I read it, still in galley form. The library is a whispering post. You don't need to take a book off a shelf to know there is a voice inside that is waiting to speak to you and behind that was someone who truly believed that he or she some uh, sh- sh- or that if she or he spoke someone would listen mm-hmm. and libraries are there because we need to be heard mm-hmm. we want to be heard and we want a place we want a place to be safe Mm. and libraries provide that shelter Mm. and they provide that whisper if we know how to listen Mm,
1: beautiful
2: what do you think Susan uh well I agree with everything I said (laughs) 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 you know I I think stories are the fundamental unit of human experience that is who we are, that is how we know who we are, how we understand each other. Libraries need to be, I mean, we all have private libraries, but that's not where that experience of sharing who we are takes place. It's, It's what takes place in those public libraries, a way of saying, this is who we are, this is who we will keep reminding ourselves mm-hmm. of who we are. And we need it to be shared mm-hmm. because it's a form of communication that goes on and on. Libraries do for us what parents do for children. And that is to, to share the stories of who they are, who they've been, and who they'll be. Mm-hmm.
1: At the moment um uh, our Victorian public libraries have the most beautiful campaign, which is Libraries Change Lives, and I would encourage you all to go and have a look at uh, the website because it is truly extraordinary. Libraries do change lives and there are beautiful stories of how that's happening every day in Victoria. So I think that's a nice segue, perhaps to our first question.
3: Hello, um, I work as a volunteer at State Library of Victoria and I work as part of our greeters community, which um, Kate has been um, very helpful in helping set up. Um, This is maybe just as much a comment as a question, but um, your comment about welcoming very different people, we see that every day. We're positioned at the main entrances of the library. so we see everything and everything, everything and anything. Um, we get all asked all sorts of questions. And whilst we, as volunteers, never, ever hope to take away from the position of the librarians and the skills that they can offer, um, I see that there's really a scope for offering something different. And you did mention about how to make libraries exciting and sexy and things like that. and. Um, our group of people is very, very diverse. We bring all sorts of different skills, languages. People are coming into this group for many, many different reasons to gain experience or um, all sorts of different reasons. Everyone's got their own reason. I just wanted to ask what what were your thoughts on where libraries are going with that type of thing, with, um, more diversity in who we employ and what sort of
1: roles there are in libraries? What was your experience at the New York Public Library? Well, I,
0: I, I think it's tremendously diverse. I mean, it's people from I mean, all walks of life, um, from the most, uh, the most well-off to the most disenfranchised. I mean, it, it's very... I mean, it's one of the last places that is utterly inclusive, for sure, I have a question for Susan that I have to ask you. Um, <laughs> do you? We will get I mean, you. your your um, experience now must have, or perhaps has changed over the last year of of this book coming out, and just the resonance it has had. I'm wondering if it has surprised you, and then added to that, just to put another layer to my question: Is are you sometimes worried? that the library, the experience of the library, as we talk about library, and we all have this soft spot for it, that we're not over-sentimentalizing it? Mm. Uh,
2: well, question. I think those are both, uh, well, I'll, I'll answer them in order, which is that I wrote this book, as you said, it was, it was something that I almost felt that I couldn't not write. And I would occasionally have these dark moments where I'd think, "Oh my God, I'm writing about libraries," <laughs> and there was a part of me that worried that it sounded so drab and that it, would this mean anything to anybody. And the the experience has been extraordinary. It, it's been remarkable, um, and far more um, enthusiastic than I could have even dreamed of. Are we sentimentalizing it? I, I think that that's a really valid question. I mean, do you walk into the library and feel instantly transported and have your life change that minute no.
0: <laughs> or do you not walk in the library and feel very sentimental about it?
2: Yes. Well, I think that and actually I think I think it's fine to feel sentimental and and I think so many of us have associations with libraries as children that there's a very natural sentimental quality that's that's wonderful. And if it means that when you go in just to take a book out you have a, also a, an inkling of remembering going to the library as a child that just makes it richer and more the more personal and and more emotional i think libraries are both greater and and i think that our what we bring to them is this expanded sense of possibility that if you're just going in to check out a book it can be a very specific and unemotional experience but our connection is so rich that it always is there affecting the experience of being in the library I, I and I don't think that we're making too much of it. I think they really are transformational. They even if it's in a just helping somebody learn English yeah. so that they can fill in a resume, that's amazing. I mean, the, the, you know, think of the other public institutions. You there aren't that many places where you think it's ultimately benign and beneficent and that there and, aren't and
0: trusted.
2: Yeah. Mm. I mean one of my favorite anecdotes was a librarian who told me that drug dealers used to come in and ask him to help uh, help them fill out their tax forms <laughs> because I didn't realize drug dealers did pay tax taxes, taxes, but yeah. they felt that that the library was the one place they could go and say, you know, I need to fill out some... Tech. Can you help me fill these tax forms out? And I thought, that, that's amazing. I mean, that's kind of a remarkable to help. thing.
1: I think I think the sentimentality um, question is a really good one. but But I have a little bit of a different take because I... I think there's a danger in us feeling sentimental about libraries. I think we have to be activists for libraries. And yeah. I think, you know, I watch what is happening and, and we watch what's happening in the UK. It's too late to become activists and supporters of library when libraries when that's happening we actually need to create our own sentimentality and well, love now. You
2: know what? I would like to say that I think being sentimental is great, being nostalgic yes, is not. Yes, that's true. That's very and true. And that there's a huge difference. Yes. And that being...
0: I wish we had an hour now.
2: I know, I know. <laughs> but you've you set the yeah, no, no, precedent. No, 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 that, We're just
0: going to blow that, that. distinction, I'd love to... I'd love to <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah.
2: I think, um, you know... The, People who are hand wringing over, like, I can't. The good I old can, days. Yeah. yeah. Or I can't believe libraries now have e books. And you think, well, wait a minute. Mm. They're they are living institutions. They ought change. to change. Mm. They ought mm. to evolve. It doesn't mean that you can't feel yes. this tremendous sentiment about your experience of the library as a child or yeah. as a young person. But, And I think that nostalgia yes, kills. That's very and, true. And, yeah. um, libraries would be doomed if they were mired in nostalgia i mean Mm. they have to be part of the current experience of knowledge and information or they or they're not relevant and they're irrelevant (sighs) Mm. yeah
4: all right we will we will go to your questions next question hi susan um i have to disagree with your comment about millennials not not wanting to buy things and just renting them. I think some of us would like to buy houses, but uh, <laughs> we just can't afford it. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, um, I actually am... There was a study done recently that I'm actually referring to in that, that there's, that millennials place a higher value on experiences and less of a value on ownership, which I happen to think is really admirable. If I never have to experience a real estate agent
4: again in my life. Right. (laughs) Um, I did want to ask a question, though, not just a comment. Have you been to the library in this building just downstairs? It is Melbourne's oldest
5: library
2: from 1842. You know, I poked my head in before. I didn't even know it was there. It's amazing. That's what everyone says. I used to work there, so I
4: have sentimentality, but not nostalgia about it um and it's
2: as melbourne's oldest library older than the state of victoria it's worth a look that's amazing yeah Yeah, i saw it as i was walking upstairs and um i didn't even realize it was in here although uh, my knowledge of athenaeums elsewhere is that they're based on being a library thank you next question
5: Uh, On the question of nostalgia, sentiment, and the function of a library, I think we have to address ourselves to the changing role of a library like the State Library of Victoria. How do we feel about interactive space? When I was listening to the lovely, the fine phrases about comfort, solace, information, a place for the homeless to go, Um, the heart swells. But the fact is that in the reading room of the state library, you'd be hard pressed to find those because it has become a privatised space in the sense that its primary clientele is students, possibly from private colleges, who are not inclined, well the colleges are not inclined, to purchase library space for themselves. Therefore, uh, the majority of people using the reading room are students and bless them for being there, it's wonderful. But it's quite loud. And once I went to see a, a librarian about it, and the li- librarian said to me, yes, it is true, independent researchers are at the bottom of the food chain. And um, I wondered about that. Um, you'd be hard-pressed also to see homeless people there in the, li- in the afternoons because it's full. Um, and it's mostly full of students. Now, is the role of the state library... Principally to serve the student population, or should educational uh, establishments be providing students with sufficient library space of their own, thus leaving more space for the community?
1: So it's a, a very good question. Um, I would say what a wonderful problem for a cultural institution to have, to have young people wanting to attend. And as you know, we're undertaking an $88.1 million redevelopment of the library, which is not only government investment in libraries of $60 million, which I I can tell you some of my um, colleagues from other states are here, phenomenal absolutely incredible investment of government money, but also $30 million, which was raised from you, the community, um, so, as a result of that, we'll have forty percent more space. Absolutely, space is an issue. Um, our our stats would actually uh, suggest that your uh, you know your um, statement in relation to private colleges is is incorrect. We have a lot of high school students. We have a lot of students from universities. Um, How wonderful. How wonderful that people under the age of 30 are using uh, the library. And at the end of the year, when we reopen spaces, we'll have 40% more space, we'll have 70% more seats. Um, But I can tell you diversity is so important to us. But it's not important to us today. Uh, That's the first principle of, of the library. It was important to the State Library 163 years ago when it was open. So... I I can see the tensions and we manage those tensions every day and there's great debate within the library around those tensions, Um, but the egalitarian nature of the service we provide is just critically important Um, and researchers are certainly not uh, at the bottom of any food chain because, you know, unusually uh, we are an organisation that actually does need to service everyone.
4: We need to serve everyone. Next question. Um, hello, as one of their members under thirty in the room, um, my mum brought me. Not under <laughs> duress, I promise. Um, I have a question about the about the temporality, I suppose, of information. Um, and if we're talking about the nostalgia of going to a library to read a book or finding relics from the past that are, you know, in hoarders' houses or, you know, maps found in the walls of old buildings we see in the retrospect of, you know, the magic of time that creates the sentimentality about information. But in the world that we live in at the moment, content creation is rampant. Um, Every day, you know, content fills in in different forms. And when does something become worthy of being in a library? Um, Do I keep the magazines that are, you know, my favourite design magazines? Like, is that worthy of keeping or I don't want to... I don't want to carry that for years, but I don't want to give it to the (laughs) library today because they'll just be like, yeah, cool, I can buy that. So that's a a
1: really terrific question, and I'm happy um, for you guys to, to answer as well. But I have one of the great joys, and there's joys every day in my life in this job. It is unbelievable. But one of the great joys is going out with some of our collection specialists who are here tonight um, to visit those who um, who have either offered or who are, we are starting conversations with around collections. And the skill set involved in that, and that's not only the skill of understanding the value of items, it's the emotional intelligence that goes with that. Because as Susan was pointing to, the... Um, Sometimes we're talking to the families of of loved ones who have archives, we're talking to to people who have collections that they have nurtured and grown and developed over decades. And so it's not just having a professional expertise to understand the value of adding that to the collection, but also understanding the emotional um, attachment to that. and also the reality of, um, Paul, it's flashing. Do we just ignore the time clock? Yes. It, is that the, yeah, no, that, that's, that's the drill? Just, uh, <laughs>
0: it's a mal- malfunction,
1: I think. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's also understanding the reality is that everything that we um uh, that joins the collection has an impact it costs to uh, preserve and to conserve um and to catalog so we need to be quite um quite uh um decisive about those sorts of things as well
0: i, I um, do you mind if i completely change the subject for a second or <laughs> no. um, i i i i um what strikes me about Susan's work is, uh, all of her work is is pursuing uh, monomaniacal passions. Mm. Um, And um, it it brought back to mind uh, um, an answer that Maurice Sendak once gave about um, the letters he would receive. He would receive letters from readers and he received one, do you know this story? No, no. He received one letter from a child, a seven-year-old child, and he was asked about how he responds to the t- children, and, and he said, can I give you one that I really like? It was from a little boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, But this one, I lingered over. I sent him a postcard, and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it had an original drawing or anything. He saw it. He loved it. He ate it. And, and it's, it's a, it's a, isn't it magnificent? Uh,
2: that's amazing.
0: But it also it made, it made me think about some of the passionate yeah. uh, librarians you describe in the book. Uh, and and that kind of pursuit, that kind of ingestion of knowledge, mm. but that, anyway.
1: <laughs> um. And
2: as uh, sadly, as you're reading that anecdote, the first thing I thought of is, oh my God, they, he got an original drawing from Maurice of course. <laughs> that must be worth a fortune. Which is why I'm an adult and not a child. Right. <laughs> I think we're going to have to
1: wrap it up there, but I want to just read one passage from Susan's book to encourage you all to buy it. She will be downstairs signing in a moment, and it is just the most beautiful book, the most beautiful book for anyone, but for library lovers, and you are clearly all library lovers. I looked around the room at a few people scattered here and there. Some were leaning into books, and a few were just resting, having a private moment in a public space, and I felt buoyed by being there, this is why I wanted to write this book to tell about a place I love that doesn't belong to me but feels like it's mine and how that feels marvellous and exceptional. All the things that are wrong with the world seem conquered by a library's simple, unspoken promise. Here I am. Please tell me your story. Here is my story. Please listen. Please thank Paul and Susan for a wonderful thank conversation. You.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. Don't forget to visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne,
4: Australia and the world.